Thank you so much. Good morning. As we're gathering together, I'm going to ask you now to take your Bibles and join with me as we're turning to Second Chronicles in your Old Testament, and we're going to be looking today at, at verse 1 in particular, and we're going to be taking it down through verse 12 in our study together. And here, once again, you and I are being introduced to another story that has to do with David's grandson by the name of Rehoboam. And it seems as though he has gone out of his way to isolate himself from God. Now, if you've ever gone out of your way to isolate yourself from God, what you need to bear in mind is that God refuses to isolate himself from you. And so he finds a way of getting involved in your life, even though you prefer that you not necessarily have that happen. Now, I want you to notice in this story the way in which God goes about getting involved in people who are prone to isolate themselves from God as we pick it up now in verse 1 of chapter 12, Second Chronicles. Here we find these words. Now, after Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. With 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and the innumerable troops of Libyans, Sukites, and Cushites that came with him from Egypt, he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Well, then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says. You've abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. And when the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. Now when Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shield Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the gods went with him, bearing the shields, and afterward they returned them to the god room. And because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. So we're going to look at these verses now, and I want you to join with me in asking, what happens? How does God work? 
particularly in the case when people are trying to distance themselves from God. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we're coming before you, we come as sinful people, coming into this world with that sinful nature. But we come, Father, before a God who had sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. When we place faith and hope exclusively in Christ's work on the cross for our salvation, the penalty for sin paid, the power of sin broken, Lord, we thank you so much for what has been done on our behalf. It's all of you. Now, when we look into our own hearts, we know that we're, we're prone to want to distance ourselves from you. Even that we inherited from our first parents who hid themselves in their Garden of Eden. But you're relentless, and you continue to track us down. Now, Father, if there's anyone in these three morning services or the fourth tonight who needs to get tracked down by you, show them it's done out of love. Show them it's done by your grace. So show them it's done for your glory. But do such a special work, Father, that they feel like they're getting crowded by you. And that's good. And you know our needs. You know what keeps us awake at night. You see the tears on the pillows that no one else knows of. And you're there. Bring comfort where it's needed and strength, Father, as well. And may the one coming today that doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior leave with a heart transformed by your grace. Warm our hearts. Engage our minds, Father. So once again, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. About a month ago, I was looking through a particular journal magazine downstairs in our basement, and it was from Country Living, and it had a picture of a, of a house that had been abandoned. It was dilapidated. Nobody had been in it for some time. What was fascinating for me was that there was one word that was used as the caption for that picture, abandoned. But as I turned the page over, what had become obvious was that a young couple had tremendous love for that old abandoned house, poured their time, their energy, their resources into it. Totally different scene, totally different picture. It looked like a totally different house. And the picture on the next page had one word above it. Restored. Are you a one-picture person or are you a two-picture person?
Have you turned the page? Has God restored you? The story we're looking at today is the story of people who sought to abandon their Lord, distanced themselves from him, wanted to become very self-sufficient, which is one of the great dangers of humanity and takes place back in the Garden of Eden. But what I want you to see here is the way that God goes about pursuing the people that are prone to abandon him and the love and the grace and the goodness that just flows out of these verses that relate to where you're at and where I'm at as well today. So what I want to do is to draw out for you four aspects here of the way in which our Lord goes about tracking down abandoning sorts of people and the way in which he ministers in our midst. Let's check them out. In verse 1 through 4, what I want you to notice with me is the first of these four aspects that when God is abandoned, I want you to be aware of the discipline God's people face. The discipline that God's people face. But it's a loving discipline. It's a gracious discipline. It's also a very intense discipline. Check it out. In verse 1, you and I are told that after Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. And because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. Now notice something about the discipline of the Lord, and as we break it down, you and I are going to see some ways in which this happens even in modern day life. For example, look at the timing. Did you check it out? In verse 1, it says, after Rehoboam's position as king was established, and he'd become strong. doesn't say before Rehoboam's position as king was established, he'd become strong. In other words, what God had done was that he allowed Rehoboam, in God's patient mercy, to reach a point where Rehoboam thought he was so self-sufficient, so strong, self-made, why, if you look back to chapter 11 of Second Chronicles, you and I would be informed that Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built up towns for defense in Judah. Why, in verse 11 and 12, he strengthened their defenses, put commanders in them with supplies of food, olive oil, wine. He put shields and spears in all the cities and made them very strong. That word strong, strength, keeps appearing again and again, doesn't it? And so Judah and Benjamin were his. And what stands out in verse 1 is that you and I are informed that he was established, that he had become strong. I find that when people are distancing themselves from God, I find that when people are prone to want to abandon the Lord, God has a tendency to wait until they think that they are strong. Strong until they think they are established, maybe financially, maybe physically, maybe relationally. But they reach a point of self-assurance when they have set up their buffer zones, if you will. And life seems such that anything that could frustrate their plans would be thwarted. 
except that they haven't factored God into the equation, you see. So I want you to notice right away the timing. It's after, not before, Rehoboam's position as king was established. The dual emphasis. Not only established, but also he had become strong. Notice then his tremendous influence. He and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. So now I want you to notice not only the timing here, notice the reason for God's discipline. They abandoned the law of the Lord, and in verse 2, they had become unfaithful to the Lord. Now when you abandon the law of the Lord, you've abandoned the Lord of the law. The law of the Lord were the scriptures. The, Lord, the law of the Lord was the, was the revelation of God to Moses with regard to his will for his people, you see. And when churches disregard God's word, when people who profess to be believers neglect God's word, there's a slow but steady distancing that occurs. There's a direct relationship between our view of the law of the Lord and the Lord of the law. And so now what they want to do is to release the restrictions that have been placed upon them. They want, in a sense, a freedom. A freedom to live as they would want to live. But there's a problem with that. Our view of freedom is, in reality, bondage and enslavement. Now, you've got to bear in mind that when, when Rehoboam had established his buffer zone and his fortified cities of chapter 11, it was to thwart any attack from the north. Problem. Big problem. God is a God not only of the north, but the south, the east, and the west. So what does God do? God ushers in the chariots of Egypt from a completely different direction. And all of a sudden, Rehoboam finds out that he was not as fortified as he thought he was. Which is so typical when people are trying to distance themselves from God and fortify themselves in life as self-assured, self-made individuals. God brings in the Egyptians, doesn't he? And he tends to bring in these chariots from a different direction than you and I would have anticipated because the buffer zones for Rehoboam were to divide north from south, not the west from the east. Notice not only the timing, notice not only the reasons, notice the means. God uses those old foes, the Egyptians, once again to get the attention of the Israelites that they have departed from the word and the will of God. So in verse 2, they had been unfaithful to the Lord, so Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and innumerable troops of Libyans, Sukites, and Cushites that came with him from Egypt, they captured, he captured the fortified cities. Not merely cities. The very cities that Rehoboam had fortified the Egyptians 
conquer. There's a lesson here, and we can't overlook it. When we seek to self-fortify our lives outside the will of God, God's disciplinary grace can come from a different direction, and He won't go necessarily to what we thought were still the vulnerable places. He can show us that our most fortified places are still under His sovereign care. It's amazing to me that God and His sovereign plan allowed the Egyptians to go after the fortified, not the unfortified cities, and captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem, you see. And I thought about that because tomorrow is the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, April 15th. It's also income tax day, and I think the two go hand in hand somehow, some way. I'm just not quite sure how, but I'm, I'm convinced. A writer states that when the Titanic came into contact with Cape Race, Newfoundland, around, around a certain particular strategic point, the wireless room was very busy sending passengers routine messages to friends, relatives, business contacts. It was during this time that the important ice warnings were ignored. Repeated warnings were sent, cautioning the Titanic that was headed toward an ice field as it sped ahead. Further ahead, a ship known as the Californian sent this message via code. I say, old man, which was the code name for the Titanic, we're surrounded by ice. The reply from the Titanic, which is now a historically remembered response, shut up, we're busy. Despite the repeated warnings, seven and all, the Titanic sped ahead toward an iceberg, and a 200-foot gash was ripped in the ship's right side. Its builder was on board, knew that the ship would sink in a couple of hours, but the people didn't take it seriously. They just went on partying, said the captain of the ship. As people were boarding, quote, God himself couldn't sink this ship. And you think about Rehoboam. And you think about people we know today who feel so self-assured and self-secure because they have built a fortified city of their soul They've kept God out, but they've got their own belongings and values and preferences and desires tucked away. And God has a way of bringing Egyptians in from a funny angle into our lives, doesn't he? To remind us that we are not outside of the workings of God. And what we need to understand is that the only form of security internal security is the eternal security that is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The actor Richard Dreyfus, being interviewed by Barbara Walter, and boy, she's got a way, doesn't she, of being able to draw out the thought processes of a person, probed his thinking on an 
ABC News interview. Richard, if you could have one wish, what would that wish be? And Dreyfus pondered for a few seconds and then responded, I would wish for internal security. Life is more than a performance, more than an act. And we know within our own fortified cities of souls that the only basis for internal security is eternal security found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when we think that we have so fortified our lives that we can keep God at bay, lo and behold, Egyptians find their way in from a funny angle, don't they? And Rehoboam is about to learn something unique and significant with regard to the grace and the goodness and the love of God, that God will show his love through discipline if necessary in order to take down the fortified cities and remind us that our security is found in him and in him alone. When God is abandoned, number one, be aware of the discipline God's people face. But here's the second aspect to this story. The number two, when God is abandoned, I want you me to be aware of the humility that God's people need. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. It's rich. And then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam, and Rehoboam's probably saying, uh-oh, he's the very same prophet that approached me when I wanted to attack the ten tribes to the north, and through him God said, no. I'm about to hear from God again through Shemaiah. Now as Shemaiah approaches Rehoboam and, and speaks to him, and to the leaders of Judah, who we are told had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak, and I stop right there. And what strikes me now is that God has waited. God has waited until Rehoboam and the leaders have become afraid. Because now he knows he's got their attention. Prior to that point, they were keeping the law of God at distance. And when you keep the law of the Lord at distance, you're trying to keep the Lord of the law at distance. But now God has a way of closing the gap, crowding our space. And here comes Shemaiah. But this time, it seems that this collision of faith and fear within the souls of these people is such that it's created a listening spirit. So now if you have extended loved ones who, for whatever reason, have distanced themselves from the Lord, abandoned at this point in their time the word of the Lord, you keep praying, keep loving them, because God's got a way of closing the gap. And sometimes what God will allow for is an escalation of fear so that they are more prepared to listen to what God has to say about what it means to be right before him. The timing of all this is incredible. Of just when the Egyptians struck and of when Shemaiah arrived. 
And so they're in fear, and they're in fear, not the fear of the Lord, but the fear of Shishak. And so he, Shemaiah, said to them, this is what the Lord says. He doesn't say, this is what I think. You've abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. Now, when you have a sense that God is about to abandon you, all of a sudden you realize how much you need God. But what interests me when I compare verse 5 and verse 6 is this. In verse 5, the reading is Rehoboam and then the leaders of Judah. But in verse 6, it's flipped the leaders of Israel and the king. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. You almost get the impression that Rehoboam is being dragged back into the presence of the Lord here. He's no longer taking the lead, but that's okay because God is. and He's very good at that, I want you to know. But what captures your attention and my attention is this. You see that word humbled? In secular usage in that time period, it described the subduing or being subdued by or of an enemy. In the scriptures, that word in the Hebrew carries with the idea of one being brought low before God. Pride is being replaced by humility. They can't rely upon their fortified cities. They're going to have to rely upon the fortified God. And where you and I are told the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves, right away we are drawn back again to that very powerful paradigm that was given to Solomon by God in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. What also strikes you in me, and I know you've spotted it, it does not say that God humbled them. No. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves. This was a direct act upon the heart and upon the soul. They have come face to face, so to speak, with the holy. What do you say when you are now in the presence of the holy and he's crowding you? Do you say you could have done better at keeping the Egyptians away? 
Can't we redo what was done with regard to the ten tribes of the north breaking away from us? What does Rehoboam and the leaders say? The Lord is just. That's all. Succinct. Short. To the point. Once again, they've got a God awareness that has made its way into their mindset and into our hearts and souls. Now, when God desires to get a hold of the one who's abandoning him, you and I have got to bear in mind then the discipline that God will use here that God's people are going to face and the humility that God's people need. And you contrast that to, for example, what Ted Turner and similar interview had to say about his relationship with God, founder of CNN. I've always identified with Jiminy Cricket. Until Pinocchio became a real boy, Jiminy Cricket was, was his conscience. He pauses in the interview. You know, I'm not looking for any big rewards, he says. I'm not a religious or a spiritual person. I believe this life is all we have. I'm not doing what I'm doing to be rewarded in heaven or punished in hell. I'm doing it because I feel it's the right thing to do. Almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. But when you look in the mirror, you're looking at the Savior no one else is going to save you but yourself. And I contrast that to the second member of the Trinity, whom we are told by the Apostle Paul, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he what? He humbled himself. The Savior humbled himself for the proud who simply want to keep God at a distance to the point of death. Death on a cross. What you and I have got to do now is to ask, is there any aspect of our lives in our own private realm that has not been bowed to the sovereign God himself? If the second member of the Trinity was willing to humble himself, does not say merely he was humble, that he was but that he humbled himself under the will of the Father, then we can perhaps connect to what F.B. Meyer once wrote. I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another, and that the bigger we got, the easier we could reach them. But now I find that God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath another. 
on the lower we stoop, the more we get. Spiritually, do you find yourself stooping or standing? I'm sure Rehoboam's taking a deep breath right now. He's tried to abandon God, and God's got a plan for Rehoboam. When God's abandoned, be aware of the discipline God's people face, the humility God's people need, but thirdly, the education God's people receive. Look now at what comes next in verse 7, because once you're humble, you're ready to learn. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, doesn't say he humbled them, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. Now, do you see the phrase that soon give them deliverance? I went back to my Hebrew Bible, and what strikes me is that the Hebrew term literally translates for a little while or the like to give them some deliverance. There's more to be done. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. In other words, now, as they're being educated in a humble state, they're understanding again the mercy of God is tied to the justice of God. There's a man named Robert Robinson. He was the author of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Some of us might know it. But as time went on, after he had penned that hymn, he distanced himself from God, abandoned God, but was troubled in spirit, decided to relieve his mind by traveling abroad. But you see, God's got a way of using the Egyptian strategy. The Egyptian strategy. Has he ever done that with you? One day, while sitting on a park bench in Europe, a woman approached singing. You guessed it. Come thou fount of every blessing. Sat down on the same bench he was sitting on, and wanting to share the good news of Jesus, asked, Do you ever hear of that song before? Now, this is the Egyptian strategy. With tears rolling down his cheeks, he finally said, I wrote that song. And I'd give anything to experience again the joy that I knew. And lovingly, she said that streams of mercy mentioned in his song still flow. Do you remember that? Come thou fount of every blessing, tend my heart to sing thy grace. 
Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Streams of mercy are, are, are saturating Jerusalem now. My wrath, he says, will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. God uses the Egyptian strategy to produce a stream of mercy. Is he doing that with you? But in verse 8, you and I are told, they will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn. Here's your educational moment. That they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. And now they're having to think back historically to when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and how Egypt chased them to the Red Sea. And just as God spared them at the Red Sea, now here's God sparing them in Jerusalem with the Egyptians on their heels. But then again, God's on their heels as well. Has he been giving you an education lately? Has he been using the Egyptian strategy? Are you being saturated by streams of mercy? We'll read on. Because now in verse 9, when Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shield Solomon made. Fourthly, when God is abandoned, be aware of the loss that God's people experience. He carted out the gold and took all of it from the temple back to Egypt. It was 30-some years ago that Dr. Walter Kaiser was my professor of Old Testament. He's got a way of staying around me. So at the end of first service, Walt and I were talking. And Walt said, Gary, I was doing a little calculations when you reached that verse. And he said, I calculated the gold amounted to about over a trillion dollars worth today. He said, man, we could pay off the debt. Do you see the significant loss that comes when a people or a nation abandon the Lord? The deficit that people are confronted with? Well, they're going to try to come up with a substitute plan. And so what, is, what does Rehoboam do? Rehoboam made bronze shields, we're told there in that verse, to replace them in verse 10, and assigned these to the commanders of the God on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. And whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the gods went with him, bearing the shields, and afterward they returned them to the God room. God has a way then of reminding us when we become content with cheap substitutes of where true value lies when we remain close to Him. You sticking with Him? Close to Him? So you look at these four aspects and you say, well, Gary, is there any hope? As long as there's a God of grace, there's a God of hope. 
because in verse 12, because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Mark what comes next. Indeed, there was some good. Underline this. In Judah. And you say, I remember studying about Judah. It was their promise of Palm Sunday. It was Genesis 49 verse 10. Let it appear on the screen and look now at the promise of, from, through Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his, and that's Jesus of the line of David and Solomon and Rehoboam. And you simply cannot negate the plan of God when it's rooted in the promise of God. And there you have it. Hope for the abandoned. God crowding you. Beware of the Egyptians. God's love at work. Let's stand together. There's so much in your word. We're awed. We're awed at the insights found in places of the scriptures that a lot of people are simply willing to overlook. And you break in, and you crowd us, and you comfort us, and you remind us that you're the God who keeps his promise. You're the God who sent Jesus to die in our place. So Father, if there's anybody here in any of these services today that's been prone to want to distance himself, herself from God. Show him or her the impact, the effect. Bring them back to the reality of the God of grace who uses unique means to get our attention. And I pray that there will be a settled peace within that heart right now. I'm with God. God is with me. And I praise you for who he is and what he's done. For which we are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.